So the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, is where we will be this morning. The message today is simply entitled, Greatness in God's Eyes. Greatness in God's Eyes. Mark, chapter 9, 30 through 37. We'll read that here in just a moment. You know, when we think about greatness, humanity likes to talk about its own greatness, don't we? Muhammad Ali once said, I float like a butterfly, I sting like a bee, the hands can't hit what the eyes can't see. I am the greatest of all time. He proclaimed that in the 1970s, that he was the greatest boxer of all time. Conversations are had of who's the greatest quarterback or who's the greatest basketball player, the greatest singer, actor, on and on and on. You know, for young people today, maybe it's who has the greatest YouTube channel or who gets the most Instagram posts. I know within the life of my own family, the Phillips family is very competitive. They must have got that from Mandy. No. Definitely got that from their dad. And there's all these competitions of who's the greatest at this and at that and even over lunch, last Sunday, I told Titus I'd call him out a little bit. There was a debate with some boys on the sound team of who was the greatest sound team member of all time in the life of Everglades. Now, they were just having fun. And in all seriousness, if you haven't told those young men, thank you for their service. Uh, they all do an amazing job. But you know what we typically don't hear in all seriousness? We don't really hear people say, you know what, I want to be last. I hope that people will remember that I was last at whatever. There's a lot of talk about who's the greatest and who's first. But do we really celebrate lastness? But we're going to see today in God's economy, being a servant of all, being last, is actually to be great. So let's read from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, and then we'll pray. And they went on from there, and they passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying unto them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed after three days he will rise but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him and they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house he asked them what were you discussing on the way but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and said unto them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child, and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him 
who sent me. Let's pray together. God, we understand this morning through your grace and through the truth of your word that you are the greatest. It's not even close. You're the creator. You're the Lord God Almighty, the makers of the heavens and the earth. God, if it wasn't for you, none of us would even be here this morning. God, the ability that I have to get up here to talk and to preach, God, it's only because of you. The, the ability that we had to be here today, uh, to breathe, to walk, to talk, to be able to sit down. God, every single thing, it's only because of you. And so, Father, when we think about greatness this morning, I, I hope and pray that our attention will be turned to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'll take my feeble efforts this morning and you'll use them in a mighty way to exalt yourself and for the gospel, the greatness of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to shine forth. And it's in his wonderful name that we pray together. Amen. The first truth that we will look at this morning is simply the gospel is the greatest. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest. May we keep the main thing the main thing. Look back at verse 30. It says, they went on from there. What was, where was the there? Well, if you remember from Mark chapters 8 and 9, they had been in Caesarea Philippi, which was north of Galilee. And so much had happened in Caesarea Philippi. Remember where Jesus is talking with the disciples and Peter, by the illumination of the Spirit through the power of God, is finally able to understand that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is the Christ the Son of the living God. And then Jesus had told them for the first time in Mark 8, 31, that he had come to suffer and that the chief priests, the scribes, would come against him and he ultimately would die and three days later he would be resurrected. And if you remember, the disciples really struggled with that to the point where Peter kind of took Jesus to the side and say, May it not be, Jesus, no, that's not going to happen. And it's almost like he was trying to correct the words of Jesus. And we know that did not go well for Peter. And that Jesus had to rebuke him. You know, get behind me, Satan. You're not, think, you're not thinking, you're not speaking the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus had exhorted them with the gospel call. It was the call to deny themselves, to pick up the cross, and to follow him. And then he took the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They go up the Mount of Transfiguration, probably Mount Hermon, and there Jesus is exalted or, or glorified before them, and they have that experience. And then last week, we talked about as they came down the mountain, it was back to the fallenness of humanity. And there was the father with the demon-possessed son and the shul that was there. 
and how the disciples lacked faith. And so Jesus not only was teaching them who he was, but he was teaching them their accessory of Philippi of what it looked like to trust him, to have faith in him, to be dependent upon him in absolute prayer. And so when you look back at verse 30, and it says they went on from there and they passed through Galilee, a lot had happened in those few weeks. And now they come back to Galilee. And they're on their way. This is the last year of the public ministry of Jesus. They're ultimately on their way to Jerusalem, where Jesus knew he was to suffer. He was to die. The suffering servant was to be crucified, which is why he had come to save his people from their sin. But think about Galilee this morning. For two years, they had seen there around the Sea of Galilee, the different places, Capernaum. Jesus, he had healed the lame. He had cured the sick. He had given sight to the blind. They had seen him cast out demons and seen his power over nature. But when you look back at the text in verse 30, this time as they go to Galilee, he did not want anyone to know. Church, it wasn't about the crowds. It wasn't about any of the miracles this time. Jesus had already shown himself to be who he was, the Son of God, the Messiah. This time, it was about the disciples. It was about Jesus continuing to teach them and to spend time with them, to love them, and to care for them, and to shepherd them, and to to disciple them. And by the way, a point of application for us as a church family, discipleship, we talk about going and making disciples who make disciples, it takes a lot of time, effort, and energy. If you're going to make disciples, you got to spend time with one another. There's a dying to self. There's times of prayer together. There's times of laughter. There's times of crying. And you see, Jesus was taking the time with the 12. He didn't want anyone to know that they were there this time through Galilee. And now look at verse 31. When we think about the greatness of the gospel, look at what he is teaching them. He says there in verse 31, he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. What's the focus of this time together? What's the focus of this discipleship? The focus is what it should always be. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we think about discipleship, Keep the main thing, the main thing. Look back at Mark 8.31. So just one chapter before, we see Jesus telling them the same thing. I referenced this earlier. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said it plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. We talked about that earlier. So this is the second time Jesus is referring to the passion of his death, his burial, his resurrection. 
Now, when you look back at chapter 9, verse 31, there's an interesting word there. You know, it uses the Son of Man. We've talked about that. That's referring Daniel chapter 7, 13, and 14, Jesus as the Messiah. It's a messianic term. But then it goes on there in verse 31, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And when I looked up that word delivered, it can mean to grant someone the opportunity to hand over to authority or to betray. So we could ask ourselves, who ultimately delivered Jesus to be crucified? We could say, it was Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. He's the one that betrayed Jesus, if you remember, there in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss. Maybe one could say, well, it is the scribes, it's the religious Jewish leaders that ultimately had Jesus arrested there in the garden and then the false trial and all the false accusations and they're the ones who led the crowd chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Or maybe it was the Roman governor, Pilate, or the Roman executioners as Jesus was flogged and beaten and ultimately nailed to the cross. But you see, those are all secondary causes. The one who ultimately had Jesus crucified was God the Father. The gospel, the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection was the plan of God before the foundation of the world. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Did you catch that? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Father to crush his son. So when we think about the gospel... This was God's plan of redemption before the foundation of the world. But when you look at verse 32, we see the focus of the gospel in verse 31, but look at the response of the disciples. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. The second time, I mean, they've been with Jesus two years. The second time he's expressing the passion, the gospel to them, and they still don't understand. You know, I thought about why they maybe they were afraid. Remember what I referenced earlier about Peter? <laughs> the last time Jesus had said this, and Peter was like, Jesus, why don't you come over here for a second, and we need to talk about this. It did not go well for Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus rebuked him, and so probably this time the disciples are like, ah, we still don't really understand, but we're not going to really say anything because the last time Peter over here had said something, it did not go very well for him. You know, Mark chapter 10, 32 through 34, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus is going to tell them the same thing for the third time, and guess what? They still don't get it. All the way up to the Garden of Gethsemane, all the way up to the cross, 
the disciples struggle to really grasp the essential nature of the gospel. But it's interesting in Luke chapter 9, parallel passage, if you guys will turn there, Luke 9, 43 through 45. Luke chapter 9, 43 through 45. God's word says this. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. This is the same story where he has cast the demon out of the, the boy. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You see, ultimately, this was God's sovereign plan of this point in time for the disciples to not fully understand. You see, God knew there was only so much that they could handle. Kind of like a parent with a child. You know, there's things that we share, but then there's things that we know our kids can't handle. And in God's plan of discipleship and his redemptive plan, he's preparing the disciples. But at this point, God is only opening up their eyes, opening up their ears, opening up their hearts to what they could handle. One commentary put it this way in all three passion predictions jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection and his suffering and his death but following all three the disciples speak of their dreams and their aspirations their ambitions jesus speaks of surrendering one's life they were speaking about the fulfilling of their dreams jesus focuses on the cost of discipleship and they were focused on the blessings and the rewards. You know, when we think about the gospel, God has to open up our hearts and our minds, our ears, to the reality of the true gospel. You see, these disciples, they had in their hearts and in their minds of Jesus as a political liberator. They were thinking Zephaniah 9.14 of the king was coming and he was going to overthrow the Romans at that point in time. But they didn't have a full understanding of Isaiah 53, that it was the will of the Father to crush the Son and the suffering and the cross that had to happen before the crown. But by God's grace... We know the end of the story. They get there. They understand the dying to self. Remember these disciples, these same ones that are struggling right now with what Jesus was saying. They ultimately all give their life for the furtherance of the gospel. Besides Judas the betrayer and John the apostle of what history tells us. 
you know, died of old age, even though he suffered much persecution. Let's go to verse 33. Back to Mark chapter 9, verse 33. So we think about the gospel this morning and how it is the greatest message. The second truth that we see about the gospel is true greatness is found in being last. True greatness is found in being last. Look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And by the way, that coming to Capernaum, this was like 20 miles or so. So this would have been a day or two journey. Lots of time together. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? You know, I thought about this, kids. Think about those times in your life when you're having a conversation about something. And it's probably not really a conversation that you should be having. And you don't think that your parents really are listening or overhearing what you're saying, but they really are. And then they ask you, even though they already know what the answer is, what were you discussing along the way? Well, this is kind of what happened to the disciples. They had been caught of having a conversation that really wasn't about the glory of Christ. It was about the glory of self. Look at verse 34. It goes on to say, but they kept silent. I mean, how, how are you supposed to, to answer, you know, this question when they know they're guilty? They kept silent. For on the way, look at what it says, verse 34. They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, that word argue there, as I looked that up, it means to make speeches or to discuss with reason. So it's not them yelling and screaming at one another. It's kind of what I was getting at at the beginning of the message today. When we have these greatest of all time discussions and we give all of our facts and all of our knowledge and all of our wisdom of whatever it is, these disciples, you know, if you could try to be a, a fly on the, the wall, so to speak, of listening to their conversation, they're, they're giving their, their reasoning of why such and such is the greatest. Maybe they shared stories of who had cast out the most demons. Maybe it was who had healed the most sick people. Maybe they discussed who had got to sit by Jesus the most. You know, I thought about in our modern day culture and time, they probably would have got out their cell phone and took a selfie with Jesus. And they'd have made their posts. And, well, I got 10,000 likes on my post. Well, I made this video, and it got over 100,000 views. It went viral. I mean, the, the heart of man is filled with pride. The heart of man is filled with pride. Stuart Scott says it this way, biblical counselor. It's not a matter if you have pride. It's a matter of how much and where is it at. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And these disciples, just like every single one of us, apart from the grace of God and the work of his spirit, the work of the gospel in our hearts, who do we think about the most? We think about ourselves. We just live in a time and an era where everybody gets to see it. Because we post it all over the internet. And we find so much of our identity, instead of finding it in Christ, 
we find it in ourselves and what other people think about us. That's what's going on with these disciples. John MacArthur said it this way, pride is the most common destroyer both of relationships and churches. Let me say that again. Pride is the most common destroyer both of relationships and churches. Who should these disciples have been focused on at this moment in time? Jesus. And the furtherance of the gospel. Loving Christ, loving one another. Instead, who are they focused on? They're focused on themselves. I want you to think about this. What did Jesus just tell them he was about to go through? That he was going to suffer. And he was going to die. And all they can talk about is who's the greatest. Everglades Baptist Church, we must always be on guard against pride in our own hearts. It's not a competition. It's not about who gets to do this and who gets to do that and so-and-so got to do this and so-and-so got the pat on the back. I didn't get the pat on the back. Nobody notices what I do. And if you're not careful, our hearts are so wicked. The focus gets off of Christ. The focus gets off the furtherance of the gospel and we get focused on ourselves. It happened to the disciples. And apart from God's grace, it can happen in each of us. And probably already has, if we're honest, to some extent. But look at verse 35. Let's move forward. Jesus sits down. Got to make an adjustment here. You know, Jesus takes this as an opportunity to teach. You know, when it says that he sat down, that was the, the formal position for a rabbi, a Jewish teacher, to really shepherd and teach. You know, they, they normally didn't stand like I'm standing. They would have sat down, and the disciples would have gathered, gathered around. Look at verse 35. He sits down. He calls the twelve. So they're gathering around him, and then here's what he says. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. For these disciples, the bubble would have been boop, all their dreams, all their aspirations. Jesus just burst their little bubble. The way to glory is through suffering and sacrifice. Greatness would be found in serving one another. The disciples had their dreams and aspirations. Jesus was going to be this political liberator. But Jesus says, no. It's not about you sitting on thrones. It's not about the overthrow and a life of ease, a life of luxury. I mean, now, yes, Jesus is going to come. He is the king of kings. We know the consummation is coming. But first he came to suffer and to die. To be first in God's kingdom, you must choose to be last. Jesus had taught them who he was, 
what true faith in him looked like, and now he's teaching them about humility, the dying to self. You know, our world says, climb the corporate ladder, look out for number one, believe in yourself, get the most likes on social media, go viral. And Jesus says, die to yourself, be a servant, be last. I want you to think about that. Those are opposite ends of the spectrum. The world will tell you, your own sinful heart will tell you one thing. Jesus is telling you the exact opposite. To be great in his kingdom is to be last. Be the servant of all. Heaven's value system is far different from our world's value system. Do we really want greatness God's way? Or do we want it our own way? I have to wrestle with that in my heart, and you've got to wrestle with that in your heart. Do we really want God's greatness his way? Or do we want it our way? God's way is to be last. It's to be the least important. It's to be of the lowest status. When he says there, look back at verse 35. To be a servant of all. That's what it means. It's dekanos. It's to wait tables. It's to consider the needs of others greater than your own. The Greek world hated this. Service jobs were demeaning. Plato, the great Greek philosopher, said this. How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Think about that. How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Jesus is saying true happiness is found in serving. Plato says the exact opposite. Jesus said he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we are to follow in his footsteps. You guys remember John 13? You don't have to turn there, but when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, this was right before the crucifixion. This is the last supper. We're going to celebrate the last supper today. John 13, they come in for the last supper. What do the disciples fail to do? They don't wash each other's feet. They don't even wash the feet of Jesus. This is after three years of being with Christ and hearing about being a servant. Our hearts are so dull, aren't they? It's not just the disciples. It's us, apart from a work of grace in our lives. And what does Jesus do? He gets up from the table, he puts a towel around his waist, and he goes to each one of those disciples, and he washes their feet. Whose job was it to do that, typically, in that culture and time? It was the lowliest of servants. It was a menial task. It was like the person that has to clean the bathrooms, clean the toilets. Nobody probably really signs up for that job. Who likes washing the dishes? Who likes doing laundry? I can tell you in the Phillips house, nobody's like, yes, I get to do laundry this week. I get to serve my family by washing all of these clothes. We struggle, don't we? Nobody wanted to do this task of washing the feet, but who did it? Jesus. Kent Hughes said this, Jesus washed the feet of his prideful, arrogant creatures. And I would add this, he even washed the feet of his enemy, 
Judas Iscariot. You got any enemies out there this morning? How do you treat people that maybe you don't get along with or don't treat you very well? And you know what Jesus tells them at the end of that? He's very straightforward. Wash one another's feet. Everglades Baptist Church, if we want to be about the glory of Jesus, if we want to be about the furtherance of the gospel, I'm not saying physically, but we got to keep washing each other's feet. we got to keep serving one another. Now, let me encourage you. By the grace of God, I've seen us do this hundreds, thousands of times. And I'm thankful for a church family that loves Christ and loves serving the gospel. But we got to understand this morning, there is an enemy, Satan, the world, our own hearts, that it is so easy for us to get caught up in pride and get focused on ourselves, that we're using all our energy talking about ourselves, this and that, and all kinds of other stuff, and we're not staying focused on the gospel and washing one another's feet and going out into our community and serving others. We just got to be careful. But let's wrap it up. Look at Mark 9, 36 and 37. Jesus now is going to illustrate this truth. He took a child, he put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms, and he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus takes this child, and he puts this little one in the midst of the disciples. He takes this little one in his arms, and it really means it's affection. He's hugging this little child, and then he says to the disciples, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, you need to understand this in Greco-Roman culture. Children were not seen as these cute, adorable, wonderful little things, okay? Really, to be a child was seen as a demeaning thing. If children were healthy, they were typically slaves or servants. They, they didn't have position of prominence. You know, we think about in our day, in a lot of ways, we see children as cute and adorable. And obviously, as Christians, we see them as blessings from the Lord. I think we do live in a time, world, and culture where kids are not always seen that way, right? And I'm not going to go there. But even in that, when you think about little children and Jesus taking this little one in his lap, Miss Jenna, Kim, probably would be a good thing for all of us to serve in kids' ministry. Because when you're around little ones, they're messy. <laughs> and there's a lot of dying to self. I guess we don't have to do this as much anymore being outside, but they're, you know, back in the day, diapers to change. There's food all over the place. Babies scream. They cry. Right, we could go on and on and on. It takes a lot of sacrifice and dying to self 
to take care of a kid. Now, the point of this passage is not that we should be like a child. The point of this passage is we should be like Jesus who embraces this little one. You remember Jesus said in another place, let the children come unto me. Jesus is teaching the disciples. It's not about your throne and your position, where you're going to sit and all that stuff. This is all about who you're going to serve. It's not about the rewards and the accolades. This is about who you're going to serve. God has a heart for the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, the ones that don't give back anything in return. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. Psalm 68.5 says, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. God has called us as his ambassadors to be representatives of the gospel, to be servants. We are to meet the needs of the poor, meet the needs of orphans, to meet the needs of widows, to meet the needs of the vulnerable. We are to embrace and do the menial tasks that are not glamorous. By the way, everything that happens on a Sunday morning, and I could really say all throughout the week, we just don't have time, is important before the Lord. Is it just about the pastor who gets up here and preaches? Is this important? Whether it's me, Doug, Jim, whoever, absolutely. We don't ever get away from preaching and teaching God's word. But who was here at 8 o'clock this morning setting up all the equipment? What am I wearing right now so you can hear me? Remember back in the day right after COVID? I remember preaching and having to scream at the top of my lungs. That was a good workout. I was like exhausted <laughs> by the time we were done. I told you guys earlier, we got some young men that get here early and set up. Who takes care of our kids when we have Family Connect? The music team. Who sets up the well? How about the bulletins? The order of service? The song list, right? All of it is important, guys. Whose glory is it for? For the glory of God. For the furtherance of the gospel. Maybe you sacrificed this morning and uh, you brought somebody to church. You went and got them. Or you invited them. My point is this. It doesn't matter. Just serve. If we have a church building one day, who's going to clean the toilets? Who's going to vacuum the floors? Who cuts the grass out here? And are we going to do it with the attitude of Christ, with joy and humility and thanksgiving? What a joy and a privilege we have to serve the Lord. And the disciples were missing it. True joy, true greatness is found in serving. You know what your homework is this week? It's so simple. Go and serve somebody. Start in your own family. Be more excited about your family getting enjoyment than yourself. Oh, that we would get there. Oh, that I would get there. 
that we would take more joy and happiness in serving our own families, our church family, our community. How's the gospel going to go to the ends of the earth? It's by dying to ourselves and being last. It's not about being first. It's about being last. The gospel is the greatest thing. It's first and foremost about Jesus. And in God's kingdom, it's great to be last. I'll leave you with a story, and then we'll pray. George Mueller. We love George Mueller. We've talked about him many, many times. Sinful man, just like the rest of us, but God in his grace saved him. Mueller was a servant. He was willing to be last. The man, I didn't personally know him, can only go by what I've read in books. He didn't really care about himself. Ministered to thousands of orphans, if you don't know his story, there in England. He took the low of the low and he made sure they were fed. They had a place to sleep, and most importantly, he gave them the gospel. He was entrusted by God in the 1800s by over, I think it was a half a million dollars or more that had been given to that ministry. You know, you know how much money he had, how many assets and inheritance he had when he died? All of his stuff put together, it was less than $1,000. He didn't care about himself. There was one little lady... She was disabled that God had connected her with Mr. Mueller. I was reading about this this week. She was a constant giver to the orphanage work. Here's what she expressed. She said she began giving a penny a week out of her earnings towards the care of the orphans. One penny, one penny a week. The Lord blessed her so much she was able to raise her weekly giving to six shillings, which was a dollar and a half. One gift she wrapped in a piece of paper, and she had this written. Give, give, give. Be ever giving. If you are living, you will be giving. Those who are not giving are not living. Everglades Baptist Church, go and be last. Go out and give your life away for the sake and the furtherance of the gospel. Let's all stand, and we'll close in prayer. Lord, what a, a convicting passage. It's just one of those passages that it hits us right between the eyes. It's the sinfulness of our own hearts, our desperate need for a Savior, our desperate need for the gospel to change us from the inside out. That, God, we would find our joy in you, in loving you, and in loving others. Father, thank you for my church family. Thank you, thank you God, for how we've, we've been able to serve one another and serve others through the years because of your amazing grace in our lives. God, help us to not take our eyes off the prize, to not take our eyes off Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, would you help us to always be about serving, to always be about giving, to be about the furtherance of the gospel. 
And it's in your wonderful name that we pray. Amen.